I was reading about property in our United Methodist Church Book of Discipline, how our properties are held not by individual congregations, but the entire denomination, which, according to the Book of Discipline, reflects the connectional structure of the church, ensuring that the property will be used solely for purposes consonant with the mission of the entire denomination as set forth in the discipline. This is thus a fundamental expression of United Methodism, whereby local churches and other agencies and institutions within the denomination are both held accountable to and benefit from their connection with the entire worldwide church. In this moment of uncertainty and change in our United Methodist denomination, as talk of disaffiliations and new denominations swirls in our meeting spaces, I wanted to understand a little bit more about how this talk about property and pension connects to the work of the gospel. I am Reverend Molly Vetter, the senior pastor at Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles, and it's my joy to welcome you back for episode three of our podcast, Where Do We Go From Here, UMC? In this episode, I get to sit down with Lonnie Chafin, the conference treasurer of the Northern Illinois Conference of the United Methodist Church. Long active in our denomination, Lonnie has served as an urban missionary, as a community developer, and now for many years as a conference treasurer. He's been a delegate to General Conference, a board member of general agencies, and active in movements for the future of our church in hopes that we would be a denomination more fully inclusive of LGBTQ plus persons and active and faithful in living the gospel. Lonnie and I sat down to talk through some of these details, and I'm grateful to dive in with him now. Thank you for being willing to take time today, Lonnie. I know you as a conference treasurer, but I know you have a history in the church before that. How did you end up in this job? And like, why is this an interesting place to serve in the church? Uh, I was a Shalom Zone guy back in the day. So first, I after college, mission intern, uh, served in Budapest, Hungary, uh, which was hard because my cappuccino sometimes was cold. It was very rough. And then uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, in Philly, we did something called Shalom Zones, which I think you Californians might know something about. It, it was a response to the... Those of us who've been around a while anyway. Yeah, yeah the Kids salty might ones. Not know. And uh, so the bishop from Chicago um, saw our Shalom Zone work and recruited me to come to Chicago to do Shalom Zones from the conference office, which I thought was exciting. And then the conference treasurer resigned and I went in as interim conference treasurer and I've been doing it for 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Uh, do you, it, it seems like a big jump from like urban ministry to treasurer work. Are there connections that are obvious to you or, or is it a jump? I think it's a jump, uh, but um, you know, most of my Shalom Zone work was around economic development and uh, and housing development. So I did a lot with kind of making budgets and programmatic results from how money gets managed. So it it was uh, I'm definitely do it with the heart or um, acumen of a community developer. I will say that. I mean, it's more people job for me than um, I feel like I'm an interpreter of financial stuff into ways in which decision-making can be made. 
So how do I speak about the financial stuff so proper decisions can be made through all the myriad of uh, groups within the conference? This is fantastic because I feel like we're in need of some interpretive work in this moment of denominational chaos in talk of disaffiliations and conversations about property and pension keep coming up. So I mean for this conversation to be useful to the lay people in my congregation or others listening in who may not be as steeped in our Methodist way of doing things or what's at stake in these conversations. So I'm hoping we can sort of like take a couple steps back and you could help explain to me, to the people listening, why is property such a big deal in conversations right now about disaffiliations or starts of new denominations? Why is property an issue in our Methodist way of doing things? Well, uh, that's a, that's a powerful question right there. Um, I think that, uh, um, you know, churches can feel like homes, right? It can be the place you got married or the place you got baptized or your child got baptized or you had some epiphany or, um, and they're designed to have kind of an emotional connection and a connection to kind of the history of the whole world. So, uh, you know, I go to a church that doesn't have a place we rent and we talk about an ability to move around. Um, and it's surprising to me that people want a home. Like mm-hmm. they they're wanting that kind of landedness. So I think, I, I think there is a emotional, emotional, spiritual kind of attachment to property. Um, so I think that's on, on the one hand. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, uh, you know, the denomination has been built around this kind of, um, I always say the Methodist polity requires two people to make anything happen, right? So <laughs> no one can go it alone. No one can go anywhere alone and no decision can be made by one group. It has to be double checked by another group. And there's a, there's an integrity in that, right? That nobody can just kind of drive away into their own interests without having some kind of accountability or, check in by the larger interests or people not in their group. And that's certainly true in the context of local church properties, where there's the local church has some of the ownership rights of a local of a property of the local church, and the conference has some of the ownership rights of the property of the local church. And so it's a shared responsibility between the two. Um, and partly that's by this notion of what we intend to be as a Methodist church. We mean to be an open pulpit. We mean to be a place in which, you know, if the bishop, uh, the bishop wants someone to preach somewhere, a church can't necessarily just shut them out, right? Uh, and at the same time, there's ownership uh, responsibilities for the local church to maintain it and keep it up and all of those kind of things. So I think the reason this is kind of a critical thing is there's been this kind of dual responsibility around property, and some people want to take their property and go out of the United Methodist Church. And the, the thing has been set up to kind of balance out those interests uh, and to really kind of not allow that to happen without a double check from someone, not, not the local church. I think it's so helpful because it helps us frame the our responsibility to the property. It's so tempting to see it in this sort of um, like blinded view where I see my scale of life in this place and this community. And I think that it's like, I have an entitlement to it. Um, the 
churches set up in this intentionally connectional way so that even when it's the the place where I'm on the board of trustees, I don't have, it's not for me, it's for something beyond me. That helps the structure, that complexity helps us prevent ourselves from becoming too narrow in our like allegiances or our responsibilities to just the people that we see around us. I think that's a, that's a lovely way to articulate it, right? That, that you aren't given authority over something. The, the something is in the mission of the whole. And really, our decision making needs to be driven by how does the mission of the of the church get accomplished with this building? Okay, so I'd like to also talk about pensions. These are two things that keep coming up in conversations, and yep. um, the people talk a lot about unfunded pension liability. Yeah, uh, can you say what what is what is that? So there are currently about thirty thousand retired clergy persons in the United Methodist Church. Uh, and there's about 20,000 active clergy persons in the United Methodist Church. What? There's 150% as many retired as there are active? Is that what you just said? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Go on. Right. 30,000 retired, about 19,000 active. That surprises you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in addition to that, there are some beneficiaries, right? So there are like people who are not act, counted active, but they might be on disability or they might be kind of pre-retired, but, you know, whatever. Um, so there's about 2,000 what we call beneficiaries uh, in the active world and about 8,000 in the beneficiaries in the retired world. So we're talking about 60,000 families, right? In some cases, that's a clergy person. Sometimes that's a couple. Okay. Uh, and every one of those 60,000 families has received a promise from the local church that we would give them uh, a payment every month for as long as they live. So between the date of retirement and the date they die, uh, there will be some check from the retirement fund. Um, now, a lot of Lay people have what's called 401ks, which you have an account on and you can draw money on. But when you run out of money from your 401k, you're out of money, right? So there's this whole industry figuring out how to make, how to not outlive your money. For the, for what we're talking around pension liability, that's not the case. You can't outlive the money. Uh, There is money for as long as a clergy person is alive uh, in retirement. And we have at least, uh, a thousand people who are over the age of a hundred in the whoa! I don't uh, think we live that long. Yeah, no. The closest thing to eternal life is to be married to an United Methodist clergy person. <laughs> I'm they, they just keep chugging along. Um, God bless them. Yeah. And so, the question is: If you have sixty thousand people who are going to live until you know for 20, 30 years, how much money do we need to have in the bank today? Mm-hmm. to make that promise, to make good on that promise, right? How much money should we have in the bank today to make good on the promise for people who are currently retired, people who will eventually retire, people who are the beneficiary of retirees? There's a lot of complexity in this system, but we need to fund it for sure going forward. There's no way out of these promises. There's no way of cutting the benefit for uh, retired clergy. It's, it's, it's sacrosanct. It has to be done. Um, and so, so the question is, are we funded or are we not funded? And as you pointed out, there is different ways of counting the assets, right? 
Now, if we were a for-profit business, we would count it in a way in which we looked at, we would say, how much money do you have in the bank today? And we would assume that it would have a return in the market. And the number we would use to assume the market return is the market, right? So bonds rates, basically. So we use the bond rates. If we bought bonds, that's a sure way to have enough money to make all these payments in the flow in which you have to make it. Um, and that's how, if we were a corporation, that's how we would fund the, We would calculate this. We would use the market's bond rates. But we're the church. So we have been using something less than bond rates. Um, and we've been using a number that assumes you know, takes on more market risk, is a little more flat or something. And so really the number, the difference between the number we've been using and the number we should have been using is the unfunded balance, right? And so the way I kind of describe this is, um, and I'm going to just throw things out here. You can cut them out, right? Right. Uh, So the way I describe this is, Um, every family has kind of a personal savings amount, right? There's an amount in your mind that if I have this much in the savings account and something comes up, right? I got to replace the car or somebody's lost a job or, um, you know, unexpected help. I finally get fed up and I quit. You finally get up, right. Um, If I, and you're like, in your mind, you're like, if I have this much in the savings account, I can get over, I can get through whatever life might throw at me, right? And, Oh, but part of that plan includes maybe I drive an Uber or maybe somebody gets a second job or we can reduce expenses or we'll stop savings in this way or something like that. Like you, you kind of adjust your life and you have a little bit in the account, uh, but you know, you can get through. And so we have been funding our pension program in that way, which says we need enough in a savings account to get us through what might come. Life might throw something at us in which we have to adjust uh, and an example of that is when the uh, financial crisis happened in 2008, all the conferences had to make special extra contributions um, in order to kind of get through that patch, but we got through that patch, right? And so we've been funding kind of at a family savings rate. Now we all have in mind a different number. And that different number is if I had this much money in my savings account, I'd never worry about money again. And so corporate funding of these things are kind of at that rate. That's what this higher number is, right? And so what happens when a church wants to leave the denomination, they're effectively saying, I'm never want to worry about this pension obligation again. And so we're telling churches that need to leave, that want to leave, that you need to fund your piece of the pension promise to these 60,000 people at the rate at which you never worry about it again. You're getting out. The rest of us who are stay are going to fund at this rate that says, if something comes up, we'll all figure it out together and make some changes. And so really it's that gap that's the unfunded piece. Is that universal across the board? Does that vary by annual conferences, the extent to which things have been funded up to this point? Um, I can show a graph. Is that? Oh my gosh, you have graphs? So this is a slide I have from Westpath. Uh, I took it from their video, you can see. This is the withdrawal liability, the unfunded amount across the whole denomination. So that gap between uh, what we have put into the bank or investments and what we should put in according to this, un- this 
uh, liability calculation. And you can see in February of 2022, it's about $2 billion, a little over $2 billion. That's across the denomination. So if we had an additional $2 billion in our accounts, we really wouldn't have to worry about this liability. It will be funded for no matter what comes. Um, but you can see how this has changed over time. Like in August of 2022, uh, it was as high as $5 billion. And again, the total, the total liability is based on bond rates. Bond rates change every day. So every month, the liability changes as we go along. Um, but you can see the denominational rate uh, was $5 billion in August of 2022 when bond rates were really low. And it's gone down to a little over $2 billion in February of 2022 um, when bond rates have revived. Pretty volatile. But the point would be, I think you can use this number right now. I'm going to use this August 2021 number. That's the only number. That's the only. That's the date of the report I have for all conferences. I don't have it after this, so I'm using this number. Uh, but you can compare it to this number. So it's about a, it's about a 30 percent, 20 percent drop uh, from these numbers. But this is the most last, most recent. So this is every conference, and this is what their withdrawal liability is. So Virginia. Uh, and Western North Carolina are over 100 million. Oklahoma Indian Mission and Redbird Missionary and Alaska Missionary are, you know, very small. Alaska is. These are small conferences, right? This is not in proportion to the population. This is in total numbers of liability. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is total numbers. And really the size of your liability is basically the number of retired clergy you have. Like if you have a large clergy pool, you're going to be on the deep end of this. If you have a narrow, uh, shallower clergy pool, you're going to be on the, you know, so here's New Mexico, the first conference that's not a missionary conference. They're about 15 million. But here's every conference and what their liability was in September 2021. You can take today's number about 20% lighter than this. But what happens if somebody leaves the denomination? Um, If they leave the denomination and go to a new denomination, uh, what Westpath will do is they'll convert their benefit that says you get a check for as long as you live. They convert that into an actual dollar amount. They take that dollar amount out of the conference assets and they put it into a 401k or 403b really for that, that departing clergy person. So we don't have the liability anymore and the person gets an actuarial equivalent of the value of that benefit uh, based on what they worked. So it ceases to be a variable. It becomes a fixed quantity. Exactly right. And there may, you know, some, version of whole. So when we talk about a departing congregation calculating its contributions to the annual conference, when I hear about sort of like the headlines, people talk about annual conferences trying to like uh, penalize departing congregations by putting an excessive fee on them for the cost of, of departing. But the, the fee that a church would pay for departing is connected to these two items, the value of their property and this pension obligation, or are there other factors involved? Yeah. So I, I think the complaints about um, 
you know, I don't know a single conference that's trying to punish churches that want to leave. I have to say, I, I know all the conference treasurers, everybody's reluctantly accommodating these requests. So I, I take those complaints to be basically it's not free, right? And it can't be free because each church promised to support these clergy persons, right? I mean, these are, it's not money to the conference. It's money to retired clergy that has to be there. It can't, there's no, there's no way out of it. So when people complain about the conference being greedy, it's really not the case. It's, it's money is owed to retired clergy from every church in the conference. And that's, that's an obligation that we owe ethically and morally and legally. Now, conferences, um, if churches want to leave under 2553, a conference doesn't have to charge for the property amount, right? I mean, that's part of the expectation and the request that's come in is people will get their building at no cost. Now, some conferences are charging something. Uh, I would say a third of the conferences are probably charging something. Okay, so you conference treasurer type people keep saying things like 2553. That refers to the paragraph in the Book of Discipline. And is that the process that was approved at General Conference in 2019? Correct. 2019 General Conference created this 2553 paragraph that itemizes what kind of, how a church could disaffiliate and what terms have to be in place for that church to disaffiliate. So this is a new and very specific process for how to calculate disaffiliation obligations. So also to sort of rewind to General Conference 2019, which is not one of my favorite places to revisit, I'll just say. Yeah. At General Conference, the proposals about sort of what to do in this moment of disagreement about our understanding of human sexuality uh, came and we adopted what we called the traditionalist plan, which was a very rigid um, interpretation and addition of like accountability, uh, sort of like persecution, I would say, of, yeah. of gay clergy people um, to throw them out of the church. So that's what the legislative body approved. And then we also approved this plan so that churches could leave. And in that moment, it seemed like the plan was mostly going to be useful to progressive and inclusive-minded churches that would want to leave because the rules we adopted were more anti-gay. Correct. But in the season since General Conference 2019, those rules have not been enforced, and it's still the very rigid anti-gay conservative groups within the church that want to leave, not as sort of we imagined in that moment, the progressive and inclusive-minded churches that are, at least primarily, there are some churches, congregations that have left, but primarily, and with the start of the new Global Methodist Church. It's churches that are not in conflict with those rules in the Book of Discipline, but so it's a different set of people using this policy than perhaps we imagined when we were approving it. Oh, it's rich in irony, the whole thing. I mean, it, it was the 2553, that paragraph that churches can use to disaffiliate, was presented by the right. Like, this is the way you can go. Uh, there's a quote from the one of the leaders of the right saying of the conservative end of the conference of the denomination saying this is how we would want to be treated if we were leaving, um, and uh, I think you know there was resistance from the progressives on passing it, um, 
but now the now the churches who don't want to be in part in con- connection with churches that can accommodate gay people uh, are using it, uh, but they they don't like it much. I do have one other thing I'd like to talk about if you're willing to hang with me for five more minutes. Yeah, of course. When the um, negotiated protocol was released in January of 2020, it came with uh, monetary amounts. It was a negotiation amongst leaders of progressive and conservative groups within the church and including central conference leaders. And it was sort of like a pathway to separating his denominations and with a payout of $25 million that could go to this group that would become the global Methodist church now and $2 million that could go to progressive denominations that would divide off. Where does that money come from? What's the. (laughs) Yeah. Where does that money come from? Um, Where does that money come from? So you've got no good answer. There were, there's no specifics that have ever been given about where that quantity of money would come from. I've what, assets does the, what, do, what assets does the United Methodist Church have? The, the global denomination the overall church. Well, again, it's a very Baroque quality, right? It's, it's lots of little groups that work in relationship to each other. So there is no the United Methodist Church with a pool of assets. There's there's a general council on finance administration and they have some assets. There's the board of discipleship, they have some assets. There's you know all these general agencies have assets. Um, but there's no kind of one oh you know owner of everything. Um, it's not hierarchically arranged so that whoever's at the top could say even though we had that in the budget for whatever, building maintenance, we're now going to use that for something else. Everything's earmarked into very specific and sometimes separately legally established groups. And so I know people have asked each of those small groups to contribute something. uh, But as you can imagine, there's a lot of reluctance to do it. I mean, when you receive money to do mission and ministry and you care deeply about that mission ministry, it's hard to like surrender it to something like a separation agreement. So I, I've not seen a well-articulated, here's where the money comes from. I've, I've heard people in leadership say we can find it or it's there, mm-hmm. uh, but nobody's willing to really put it out there what that is. I start to get uneasy because I'm aware that the primary assets of the church are not liquid and right. they're very specific places and they represent our ministries and our commitment to living the gospel in a place. And there are things that we've inherited from generations before us that we've been given responsibility for. Uh, So if you put it all like on a piece of paper and said, here's all the assets of the church, on the one hand, it would look like the church has so much resource, right? but is that resource that we're entitled to do whatever we want with, or is that resource that we're obligated or responsible for? Like, stewarding faithful to those before us and those after us those are like really different ways to to think about for me me as a conference treasurer i always think that uh, every dollar that comes in has a prayer attached to it like it began in somebody's plate and a prayer was given over it in the altar and we have to have fidelity to that prayer 
that's what we have fidelity to. Right. And um, I'm not one to be casual about that. You know, you know, giving it to GMC needs to feel like ministry for that to feel right. Um, not just buying, buying off a problem. A lot of annual conferences are seeing petitions that um, would divide assets among the conference. So uh, there's one conference uh, where I've seen as part of their uh, reports, every asset of the conference and a, and a proposal that it made a spreadsheet with all of the assets of the conference. Yeah. And that's like a campus ministry location and a like summer camp property and like the a church property that quarters building conference headquarters, the parsonage yeah. that, that the district superintendents live in or the yeah. bishop's house, the pension reserve, the reserve for whatever else, uh, all the assets of the conference in a list. And then the proposal would be, they'll take a vote. If 60% want to go GMC, 60% of the assets would go to the GMC and 40% of the assets would go, would stay with the UMC. And I've seen about three or four conferences with petitions like that in this year. And so that's something to be very alert to. I've only seen them in conferences where the GMC has kind of a critical majority, right? So I think it's places where they can kind of set the terms and it can feel fair in that time. But in fact, there's some layers of complexity and things to be responsible for that may not be obvious. And that maybe the most disturbing aspect of that to me is that it, reduces the whole of our like shared life to monetary values. And uh, from what you've just described anyway, I don't hear any conversation about like, who's going to take responsibility for the ministry to uh, homeless people in downtown wherever, or who's going to take responsibility for a campus ministry at the university of whatever. Uh, Instead it's reduced all of those things to assets on a balance sheet, which is uh, very sort of individualistic and in this moment way of thinking about what it means to be the church, to have responsibility for properties that are not just cash value. They're, I, I they think house things. They house things that are of value. Do you have any um, advice or guidance for what members of a local church can do in this moment? Uh, be, be not anxious. And then shalom will spring up in our communities. <laughs> yes, right. And Come back full circle. This is the all. The world shall be a shalom zone and all shall know peace. <laughs> May it be so. Thank yes. you for your time today. I'm really grateful. Thank you for being with us for this third episode of Where Do We Go From Here, UMC. These conversations are an attempt to understand more deeply the place where we find ourselves as a United Methodist Church in 2022. This conversation was designed for the members of my congregation, a local church that's committed toward living toward full inclusion and celebration of the LGBTQ plus persons and the faithful witness of the gospel in works of love and justice and joy in our shared community life. I hope it's been helpful to you And I encourage you to stay tuned in to the conversation. Join us next week as episode four features Bishop Karen Olivito, 
our first openly lesbian bishop in the United Methodist Church. Her life and witness speak powerfully and beautifully about the work of the gospel. And I look forward to hearing from her about what more we can do to aid in the cause of the work for justice. I hope you'll be with us next week. Thanks for joining us today and blessings. Blessings.